Chapter 2, Part 2 of Pioneer Work in Opening the Medical Profession to Women by Elizabeth Blackwell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 2, Part 2 Earning Money for Medical Study, 1845 to 1847 I find interesting details of that long drive, when every day took me farther and farther away from all that I loved. We forded more than one rapid river, and climbed several chains of the Alleghenies in crossing through Kentucky and Tennessee into North Carolina. The wonderful view from the gap of Clinch Mountain, looking down upon an ocean of mountain ridges spread out endlessly below us, and seen in the fresh light of an early morning, remains to this day as a wonderful panorama in memory. We at last reached our destination, viz. the school and parsonage of the Reverend John Dixon, formerly a physician, where I was to teach music. The situation of Asheville, entirely surrounded by the Alleghenies, was a beautiful plateau through which the rapid French Broad River ran. I must here note down an experience occurring at that time, unique in my life, but which is still as real and vivid to me as when it occurred. I had been kindly welcomed to my strange new home, but the shadow of parting with the last links to the old life was upon me. The time of parting came. My two brothers were to leave on their return journey early on the following morning. Very sadly at night we had said farewell. I retired to my bedroom and gazed from the open window long and mournfully at the dim mountain outlines visible in the starlight mountains which seemed to shut me away hopelessly from all I cared for. Doubt and dread of what might be before me gathered in my mind. I was overwhelmed with sudden terror of what I was undertaking. In an agony of mental despair, I cried out, Oh God, help me, support me, Lord Jesus, guide, enlighten me. My very being went out in this yearning cry for divine help. Suddenly, overwhelmingly, an answer came. A glorious presence, as of brilliant light, flooded my soul. There was nothing visible to the physical sense, but a spiritual influence so joyful gentle but powerful, surrounded me that the despair which had overwhelmed me vanished. All doubt as to the future, all hesitation as to the rightfulness of my purpose left me, and never in after life returned. I knew that, however insignificant my individual effort might be, it was in a right direction and in accordance with the great providential ordering of our race's progress. 
This is the most direct personal communication from the unseen that I have ever consciously had, but to me it is a revealed experience of truth, a direct vision of the great reality of spiritual existence as irresistible as it is incommunicable. During my few months' stay in this friendly household, I borrowed medical books from the doctor's library, for my purpose of becoming a physician was known and approved of. On one occasion, a fellow teacher laughingly came to me with a dead cockchafer, which had been smothered between her pocket handkerchiefs, and offered it to me as a first subject for dissection. I accepted the offer, placed the insect in a shell, held it with a hairpin, and then tried with my mother-of-pearl-handled penknife to cut it open. But the effort to do this was so repugnant that it was some time before I could compel myself to make the necessary incision, which revealed only a little yellowish dust inside. The battle then fought, however, was a useful one. In my later anatomical studies, I never had so serious a repugnance to contend with. The winter passed pleasantly away in beautiful Asheville. I was in friendly relations with all around me. In my leisure time, I studied in the pleasant grove which connected the school with the church, rejoicing in the ever-changing mountain outline visible through the trees. The harbinger, with its bright visions of associated life, came regularly to me and nurtured that faith and cooperation as the necessary future of society which has become one of my articles of faith, my chief regret at this time being the stoppage of my attempt to teach colored children to read, as this was forbidden by the laws of North Carolina. The following letters describe the life in North Carolina. Asheville, June ninth, 1845. Dear M., My first impressions of Asheville are decidedly pleasant. I find the Reverend Mr. D. a well-educated, intelligent man, beloved by all, and regarded quite as a father by all his pupils. He reminds me continually of Mr. L. in the shortness of his legs and the activity of mind and body, in superficiality of thought and obliging social disposition. Mrs. D. is decidedly lovable, quite a little lady, ever cheerful, kind, and intelligent, performing her numerous duties like a small, true Christian. Asheville, 1845. Dear H., I am very glad to find that you have the feelings of a gentleman, that though you would not promise to write to me, you perform which is decidedly the better of the two. Now I have to call you and S to account for your breach of promise. What is the reason you did not come to my window, as you agreed to do the morning you left Asheville? 
I got up before four o'clock and waited and watched, at last grew angry and wished in revenge that you might have fine weather and plenty of ripe blackberries the whole way. It was a very shabby trick, and if you do not render a satisfactory explanation, I shall scold you well when next we meet. Your domestic items all interest me. How do you like the change of teachers in the school, and who will superintend your room? Will Dr. Ray still teach? You must tell me also what day school begins that I may think of you and Billy sitting with grave faces behind the little wooden desks, rivaling one another in intense application. Did you take home any stones for our cabinets? Does the collecting fit continue, or has it vanished with the departure of Mr. Hildreth? I have not obtained many specimens as yet. Little Sarah Dixon takes great interest in bringing me what she considers pretty rocks and putting them on a newspaper on my window seat. I was really surprised the other day to see how pretty they looked, though, of course, not of much value. Little bits of quartz, white, gray, brown, pink, a stone full of mica, which looks like a piece of lead ore, a conglomerate of nice quartz tinged with some metallic substances, and with garnets embedded in some of the stones, and flints of various colors, nothing to a professed mineralogist, but pleasing to me. Last week I went to a party at Mrs. P.'s. She has a separate establishment from the hotel, and which she does not choose to have anything to do. I was invited to meet some Charleston ladies who had called on me and made themselves very agreeable. I suppose you would have been most pleased with the eatables. The ice cream, whips, jelly, and cakes were delicious. But what delighted me? was a little Channing glorification, M will understand what I mean, that Mrs. Carr, the lady who so resembles Ellen Channing, and I held in the garden. She has never seen our Mr. Channing, but the doctor used to visit at their house, and she described with enthusiasm a splendid sermon that she heard him deliver in Philadelphia. I replied by describing the eloquence of our Mr. C. Then she expatiated on the kindness and loveliness of the doctor's character, to which I added a description of the goodness, purity, and the angelicalness of his nephew, whereupon she expressed a great desire to see him and I said that I should consider it one of the greatest of blessings to have enjoyed the social intercourse of the good doctor. The conversation was quite a treat to me, a sort of safety valve to heterodox steam that I lacked so deplorably at Henderson. My playing seemed to give satisfaction, the piano is a beautiful one, like ours on a more brilliant scale, and as there was no one to rival me in the instrumental way, 
I raised the top, played the potpourri, and made a tremendous noise. I do wish that minister would stop singing his nasal hymn tunes just underneath me. He's been at it all day, and it quite puts me out. I also showed some tricks which puzzled the company, particularly a very tall man with long projecting nose and retreating forehead who looked like a stupid fox. Miss Jane P. was seated in a corner behind a little table on which were drafts arranged as the nuns of the Lady Abbess she challenging everybody to introduce the four cavaliers unknown to the blind mistress. Everybody said it was not possible, and Miss Jane turned triumphantly to me to know if I could do it. I said I could not only introduce the four knights, but their four squires also, and then suffer knights, squires, and four nuns to elope, without the blind abbess having the slightest suspicion of the defection. Everybody thought it impossible, but when I actually performed the feat, they looked upon me as half a conjurer, particularly the stranger fox, and Mrs. Dixon thought it was hardly safe that I should occupy the front bedroom in a young lady's boarding school. I also amused them with the three jealous couples crossing the stream. We were all very merry, and I did more talking than I have accomplished in the same space of time for many a day. On our return home, the young gentleman who accompanied me said that if he had only known I was coming, he would have gone from New York to Cincinnati to escort me to Asheville. I did not tell him how very glad I was he did not know it. And on my expressing a wish to visit Mount Pisgah, he assured me that to the very next party that was made up, he would be sure to see that I received an invitation. I did not say he need not trouble himself that I should get the invitation without his interference. I only thought all that, for I am growing very polite in my manners. About a week ago, I rode to the Sulphur Springs, which are about four miles from Asheville. They are not much resorted to, the country round being tangled and rather uninteresting. The springs, however, are situated in a delightful valley, through which the wind blew most refreshingly. A roofed platform is erected in the midst of the grass plat, the perfectly clear water welling up into a marble basin on one side and then flowing away in a little rivulet. I found a countrywoman resting herself on the platform with a bright, pleasant face and very communicative. I sat and talked to her and thought of the woman of Samaria. Presently a bilious-looking southerner came down and drank a dipper full of water, which dispelled all the illusion, for my imagination conjured up rice swamps and clanking chains. I have not taken many walks about here, for the weather, though delightful for July, 
is too hot for walking, and riding seems out of the question, it being harder to get a horse here even than it was at Henderson. Dr. Dixon has one old fellow, but he is used in the fields a good deal, and one person cannot ride alone. Borrowing or hiring seems equally impossible, so I shall be the poorest rider in the family, apparently, for I suppose Henry's nice little pony and our three other horses will be kept in constant use. I find it equally impossible to get a partner in chess. Dr. Dixon understands no such games and disapproves of them, so I cannot train any of the girls, and Miss C. does not care to play. I set up the men one afternoon and tried to beat myself, but it would not do. I could get up no enthusiasm, so I put the pieces away in despair and used the board as a writing desk. Tell me all the home news, what M does and Ellen and Kate, what nonsense H talks and S's puns, the visits they receive, and the excursions they make. If you hear of any new books, let me know, for I imagine they do not find their way up here very quickly. I have Littell's Living Age regularly, and I am reading Allison's History of Europe, but such thing as a novel Dr. Dixon reprobates, and all he calls light reading. Now, Howie, do you not think I am very good to send you such a long letter for your little scrap? Write me a full sheet soon. End of chapter 2, part 2